Hey everybody, what is going on? My name is Allison and I'm the host and creator of the Locally Sourced podcast. On today's episode, I will be talking with Matt Gainham. Matt is a has been in recovery for 14 years. He is a father, a published poet, an author, and an advocate, and the CEO, CEO of Aftermath Addiction Treatment Center, a new facility that is he recently opened up in Wakefield. Matt, welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you for having me. How's it been so far during COVID? Uh, opening the new business, recovery-wise. I mean, yeah, I think just life in general, being a father, working. How's uh, that been is, going? It's probably one of the you know, it's the hottest, hottest time in life. I think all of us are dealing with forced isolation, separation from your family, your friends. Uh, they really, there's no really, no real outlets for people either. Like simple enjoyment. Um, I think there's some fears going to like the movies, even though they're open at a small capacity, uh, you know, taking the kids to like Dave and Buster's, Chuck E. Cheese. I mean, there's just there's, there's a lot of fear and drawback to a lot of like public places. So I feel like, you know, it's 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 just mentally draining on a day in, day out basis Um for recovery, it's difficult because a lot of recovery is based off of meeting in person, shaking hands, giving hugs, telling somebody that you love them, having that person-to-person interaction that a lot of things have been resorting to Zoom. And you don't have that same human connection when you're discussing something through a camera. Now, have you seen an increase in the population coming out to your treatment centers or Mm -hmm. just in terms of families reaching out? I I think a lot more people are discovering that they have a problem through this. Um, what I've seen, uh, one of the trends that I've seen is uh, working class, working from home, kids on Zoom in another room, are, are, you know, I can drink, I can take a shot to get going, or let me take the edge off a little early. And, you know, that was back in March when they started doing it, where now they're, they turned into like full-blown, you know, I need to drink every day. No, nobody's really discussing. I mean, even if you look at the lockdowns and essential business, do you know one of the, the essential business that stayed open? Liquor stores, because if they close the liquor stores down, they didn't want emergency rooms flooded with people that were kicked into alcohol withdrawals. Yeah, my uncle, we own a family business and he mm-hmm. was saying that they're, they're like, he has to close down. He asked yeah. one of the state people or the um, town officials. He's like, why do we have to close and liquor stores mm-hmm. stay open? He's like, because if they didn't, the emergency room would be filled with yeah. people who couldn't be sober or got sick from being sober yeah, or just had yeah. to seek something else out. So it's crazy that this is coming about and just... And that's a normal conversation. Like, hey, we are keeping this open because of there's so much alcoholism running rampant that we just don't want the emergency rooms overflowing. But yet your family-owned business is getting shut down. Right. It's, it's just crazy to think about the priorities. And, and you know, I, I'm sure it's been around forever. Just they're mm-hmm. drinking one beer at night yeah, yeah. after work and it comes but I think, after work. But I think this is something like we, you know, at the, at the center, I've had some people that like never, ever experienced a treatment center or rehab or detox, never thought they had a problem, would go out and socialize and drink, you know, Friday and Saturday nights with friends or or, or whatever the case is, maybe a drink here and there during the week, but never to the extent of what's been going on. And it's just easy because you're going to your computer, you know, you don't even really always have to get dressed up for work because you're doing a lot of like whatever it is online, on the phone, 
And it's like, all right, well, you know, the kids are aggravating me. I can't leave the house. It's not like, you can, you know, you can't go to a bar. So now they're, they're, they're drinking or having a couple of drinks to get through the day. And that was in March. And now it's, you know, full blown. They wake up, they need to drink, drink throughout the whole entire day, drink to go to sleep, drink to get through the work day, drink to help the kids with homework. It's like, you know, and then on top of it, you, you're on top of your family. And I, we all love our families. Like I love, you know, but there's times when you do not get the chance to like, you know, have any enjoyment outside of the home that your wife or your husband's going to get on your nerves that your kids, it's just like, you know, I, I can't count how many people I've talked to that just wish they could drive to their office just to leave the house for a few hours. That's true. I mean, I, myself, I'm a stay at home mom. I work two part-time mm-hmm. jobs and I, just on the weekends, I'm like, I tell my husband, let me just run out for 10 minutes, take a yeah. drive around the block I'm gonna, yep. and just listen to, to music. That's not kids mood music or mm-hmm, I, mm-hmm. I can't listen to blue clues right now. Um, yep, so, yep. you know, I get it. And it's hard because people aren't employed. They're probably losing yeah. their jaws financially. Well, so, having a so struggle. Much, I was talking about just working. Never mind. You have people like your family member that lost their business. Or they they were forced to shut down. I hope they're surviving, but not they're, everybody. They're doing good, stores. thankfully. But mm-hmm. a lot of small businesses are shutting down. But that's right now. so now. So let's look at that. You spend thirty years of your life. You create a successful business, and success is different definitions. It's not always multimillionaire. It is, you know, I, I make a very good living. I provide for my family. I own my house. All the bills are paid. You know, I have some money in savings. But you don't have the ability to shut down a, 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 a machine of a business and be able to survive through it. I mean, look at pizza shops. I owned one two years ago, right? And the margins are so small, the profit, you need to stay open. And it's like for those people that, that lost any revenue or that had to shut down to float their business, it was like, you know, early on, I saw so many businesses closing down. I've talked to a bunch of friends that own businesses that are, are terrified if we resort back to another lockdown and some that are like, I'm not even, I'm not even going to follow the guidelines in, in America, we are supposed to have life liberty and we have, have the pursuit to provide for our family. And that should be something that's essential. It should be essential because, you know, it's cool to like lift evictions and, and mortgage and all that other stuff. But again, one day, all that stuff's going to come back. And then what's going to happen with people? housing is going to be stripped from a lot of people that, that haven't been paying their mortgage. Unemployment is run out. Job opportunities aren't there. You have some people that are getting creative with things. You know what I mean? Finding side jobs or, or, or doing some, some outside the box thinking, which is huge, but a lot of people aren't. And it's, you know, how many companies are also going to realize, well, we don't need to run at this capacity. We can run with less manpower. And with that less manpower, we can get them to do more because they should be privilege that they still get a salary during these times yeah and i think that just shows how society is run in general um just we never notice it because we're always in the rat race the nine to five rat race and we you know run in there run in here run into our kids and finally we just have this time to re-examine our lives and the way we're coping may not be the best way um i was recently i just had anthony guardia from the boys and girls club on Mm -hmm. the show and he was talking about stoneham as you know is a middle-class suburban neighborhood and he said you know it's not 
out in the open of those whom are struggling mm-hmm. throughout the year. And now with COVID, it's just right in front of you. It's yeah. right. These parents who have full-time jobs, a house yeah. and the cars, and they, they can't afford to get their kids oh. food. And it's just oh. so hard. So I can't imagine having some type of addiction or even if they can recognize they have an addiction, yeah. just dealing with whatever's going on right now. Yeah. I mean, there's um, a lot of despair out there and, and talking on the recovery tip. I mean, there's a lot of people that have relapsed with multiple years. You I was get just to a certain, you, you get, you get to a certain point where like you have a career, you know, you went from a sober house to renting your first apartment. Maybe you own your first house and then through no fault of your own, we get put on lockdown. Companies have to downsize. People are losing jobs. Maybe you built up a career where you get to a certain salary that you're comfortable with and then overnight it gets taken from you. And now what? Like now, are you going to be able to find that same position elsewhere? You know, you're isolated. You don't have the recovery meetings in person that you can meet at. You know, you see a lot of people that you know, unfortunately go out during this period because due to the despair, I mean, overdoses are up, suicides are up and not just like with people with substance abuse. I mean, child suicide rates are up, you know? I mean, when you talk about disconnecting kids from having fun with each other, you know, my son, his friends down the street, we go walking our dog and uh, even socially distanced parents are scared where he wants to say hi to his friends. What's the normal thing? Hey, let me go say hi to my my buddy such and such. And you see their parents that are, it's like the black plague. They grab their kids and run inside. And it's like, I don't know how, when, when and where did we get to a point that we are terrified of each other for things that aren't even, I get the disease is real. I'm not saying whatsoever that, that there shouldn't be precautions taken for something like this. But I think uh, the reaction, the lockdown, the separation is uh, an overreach on how to uh, treat something of this. Um, I mean, if you just go on the CDC website, you can look at the age ranges and the statistics that are posted weekly. There's a daily tracker. I look at it just about every day. Average age of death is usually around 81, 82 years old. Average hospitalization is 69. And that's not saying that I want anybody's grandparents in the hospital or to get sick with this. I'm just saying to, to have my 12 year old son and his 12 year old friends terrified to communicate with each other or be close due to the fear of this virus is something that like, you know, it just blows my mind. It's just not a logical thought, you know? I mean, my, my idea would be, you know, you isolate people with, with comorbid, uh, the comorbid diseases, uh, we, we give extra attention to them, extra attention to senior citizens. I mean, we're all healthy bodies that we could deliver food to them and really try to focus on the demographic that, that really gets sick. And that's like the higher risk. I'm not saying that, you know, everybody, everybody is at risk to get this, but I also know that it's my responsibility to wash my hands and take care of myself. It's, you know, I don't, I don't understand the whole concept of government dictating everything. Yeah, so. no, I totally understand you. And I think a lot of people, it's safe to say, feel the same way in the sense mm-hmm. that now we've been in this for a year. Like, yeah. why hasn't anything changed? How come there's yeah, a second nothing, wave? So that's that's like one of the biggest things about this. It's like, well, we've been doing what we've been doing for 10 months, yet we're, we're, we're resorting to things that we did months ago that 
in my opinion, haven't worked. So it's like, you know, let's shut down businesses again. Like, let's destroy, like, that's what makes, you know, that's like the, the backbone of America. Like, you want to destroy small business and take away people's livelihoods and, and houses, getting them evicted, homelessness, unemployment rates, you know, probably one of the highest it's ever been, if, it, if not the highest. I mean, let's just destroy America as we know it. I don't know. I like I, I severely feel for for my friends that own businesses, my you know, the waitressing restaurant like I mean, it's just crazy. You know. And then they want you to do outdoor dining but make it indoor outdoor. I don't know, it's just like they they really complicate the hell out of things instead of trying to simplify it. And then on my end like we we were trying to, you know, we I opened a treatment center in the middle of this. So there was, there's difficulties in that, you know what I mean? Like trying to, to build something new at a time when everything, you know, is, is getting shut down. And there's fear that, you know, we deal with the demographic that, uh, you know, just recorded the highest overdose deaths in history from June, 2019 to June, 2020. This next year is going to be even higher than that. And, and not that, that it's a happy stat to say, it's just due to this lockdown, due to some of the complications with this, like more people are going to die due to substance abuse. And it's yeah. like this fear of we have our doors open and we do where people can come in um, to groups. And we also do telemedicine where they can, you know, log in uh, for treatment through, through that means if they have, you know, it's up, ultimately if you're scared to be around other people, do through, you know, hop on zoom, get the message, participate, do your one-on-one therapy, see, you know, the nurse practitioner for any meds that you might need. But like, there's still that in-person, you know, and I have fears that like, if we go into another lockdown, though we're deemed essential, it's like, you know, what are people gonna, they're gonna approach us that, that there's too many people here. And it's like, well, people with substance abuse have been dying for years and years and years. This isn't a, 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 um, a, a novel virus. This is a disease that's affected people you know, since alcohol was made, since drugs were put on the market. I mean, like people die and it's not just the person that dies. The entire family gets affected, whether that's somebody's mother or father, sister or brother, son or daughter. Like when, when somebody dies, like it affects everybody. Same, you know, similar to when somebody dies with the virus. I mean, it's not just one person leaving it. it it's breaking the hearts of a whole family. Yeah. And, you know, I just, meeting in virtual so different from meeting in person because mm-hmm. you know as I used to be an educator and when you yep. see that person up front you can see how they look yes. look at their faces and you can just tell by looking at someone's yeah. face how well they are doing and just the personal interaction of hearing someone's mm-hmm. voice right in front of you it makes a whole difference oh absolutely and this has changed the entire way that you learned how to do your job one of my one of my Good friends, Richie, uh, works for the Boston Public Schools. And uh, in the early days of this, after the first two-week lockdown, like going into the two-week lockdown, he had to reimagine how he teaches. He went through school years and years in the field, and now it's like, how do I interact with this? And he works at one of the, the, you know, in the worst school districts in the state of Massachusetts, where it's like half of his class goes to school as an outlet from what's going on at home. And that it's the only place that they feel safe. It's the only place that they get a meal. Now, I know a lot of schools have still provided that lunch, to my knowledge, 
um, throughout the year, but it's still, it's like, you know, that's like freedom from, you know, a drug addict at home. That's an active addiction, uh, an abusive home, domestic violence that's going on. Um, you know, there's just like, there's a lot of problems going on and like the kids, like, I feel so bad for the kids that are in school right now. Cause it's only going to set them back. And even if the, you know, you continue with the mask mandate, it's like, communication for kids in the early development years part of it is how do we talk and do I smile with what you say do I laugh at it does it get me mad like that you know there's there's um just things that you pick up social cues when you're when you're developing at a young age that like the mask prohibits zoom prohibits you know if you're not actually interacting with kids now you're just looking at the teacher and it's just like everything you know I get frustrated with Sometimes my son's uh, electronics use. It's like, now I can't even say anything because he, you know, most of his day is spent on a computer. Yeah, I think it's in, have you noticed an increase in families calling about certain ages? I just feel like with everything happening right now, how are these kids coping? You know, teenagers could be turning to more substance abuse, drinking. Yeah, yeah. Because they can't go certain places. Yeah, I mean, we, we're in adult facilities, so... I mean, most of them are adults. I've had some, you know, people reach out on different social media platforms for kids that are like, you know, starting to experiment with other things. And it's it's just difficult. A lot of times when you're going to school, you have a counselor that's going to pick up on it, a teacher that's going to pick up on change behaviors that you might be able to catch something a lot sooner before it happens. And it's like, you don't, you know, you don't have that. It's just tough. It's, it's like yeah. one of the weirdest periods in time. You know, it's just something we'll look back on and just be like, wow, that that was wild. Hopefully they put it in history books. So we learn from our mistakes. And, yeah, yeah. you know, it's just it's just a time where we'll all forget about it in five years. But we'll always look back at our pictures with all of us. Well, will we? Who knows if this doesn't last for another five years? Hopefully, well, fingers crossed. We're in no. the we're free after next year or so. But it's. Hopefully. Um, you know, it's just crazy. Like you said, it's, I, I can't imagine being a kid right now and having no. to deal with it at any no. age and being parents, mm-hmm. like you said, it's just hard on everybody, mm-hmm. no matter what age race or financial situation you're in. It's just hard on everyone. Um, mm-hmm. so as we move on, you want to, yeah. do you mind talking about, um, your recovery and where yeah. you were before your recovery and how it all began? Yeah. I mean, I'm, I've been in recovery for 14 years. Um, you know, it started out as a young kid. I got involved with, um, you know, a crowd of friends that whatever they were doing, I was doing. So I was heavily influenced by peer pressure. I didn't have the courage to like think for myself or, or say no when certain things came up. It wasn't bad in the beginning when sports was all we would do and we did it to an extreme. So I would play basketball morning, noon and night, weekends. Um, you know, my addiction started at 12 years old. I was walking to school. A friend of mine stole a pack of cigarettes from his mother. And one by one, he handed a cigarette to each and every one of us. And we lit him up and coughed our lungs out on the corner thinking we were cool kids. And when he handed me that cigarette, I didn't, you know, unfortunately, I didn't think like, hey, I shouldn't do this. It was more like, if I don't do this, they're going to make fun of me. They're going to not want to hang out with me. I'm going to be alienated from my group of friends. And I, I just... I didn't have the courage to say, no, this wasn't for me. And that right there progressively led me, you know, the next step was drinking. 
you know, we started drinking. A buddy in the same situation. We're at a friend's house, party going on. He steals beer out of the refrigerator, and we sat drinking by the side of his house while everybody was inside. Got drunk, got warm and fuzzy inside, and and liked the feeling. Um, you know, while I was under it, under the influence, and um, you know, again, it was the same situation where you know I was handed something and I couldn't say no. You know, the next it was weed, then it then I started doing like club drugs, like mushrooms, acid, and ecstasy, and special K. My freshman year, I got kicked out of two schools. My freshman year. Um, you know, because I was getting into fights when I was high, I was talking back to teachers, I was skipping class, like I was just not, I wasn't the best child, um, you know, during these, uh, during my freshman year. My sophomore year, I actually stopped doing drugs for uh, probably nine months of my sophomore year. Um, I was in my third high school. I played varsity baseball, varsity basketball, uh, started hanging around with better kids that weren't involved with everything. And uh, the summer after my sophomore year, I started getting banged up again. Um, started partying a little, little heavier. Um, and then my junior year, I had scholarship offers for baseball. I, I had a good season playing basketball. Um, and I got introduced to this thing called Oxycontin. And um, back then, um, we didn't know that, that taking this Oxycontin pill would turn me into a homeless heroin addict down the road that would kill off most of my friends that I grew up with, kill off pretty much a whole generation and get us, you know, eventually progress to, uh, to shooting heroin. Um, we didn't, none of that was, was, you know, explained to me the first time I did it. I was at a house party. I was around friends. And again, when you're like in those social settings and it seems acceptable and, and the peer pressure with, not that it's peer pressure. It wasn't like somebody was like, Hey, do this. I'm going to beat you up. It was more this unspoken, you know, my own voice in my head saying I need to do this because A, B, C, and D will happen. Um, I, I tried it the first time. Somebody told me it was like taking a few perks. So I didn't think, you know, it was synthetic heroin in a pill. Um, once I got that first time I did it, there was, there was like drawbacks to everything. When you drink, you get sick, you puke. Um, I had some bad reactions to, to hallucinogens, ecstasy when it wears off, it's, you know, it's torture. Uh, I didn't feel any after effects the next day after doing it. Um, it was this euphoric feeling. I mean, when you give a healthy 16 year old kid, a drug that's meant for people eight, you know, on the verge of dying, right? Cause that's how, what Oxycontin was created for. It was created for people in hospice to ease into death. You give that to a 16 year old that takes off the time release and gets 12 hours of a pill all at once. It's like, you know, a feeling that you just can't describe. And then it, it became this obsession of doing it every day. You know, it started Fridays and Saturdays. And on top of it at 16, I could call a drug dealer up and get a pill. I can't go to the liquor store and get beer. I'd have to find somebody to buy you know, alcohol for me. Well, when you call a drug dealer, they, they don't ID you. They don't even question who you are. They just, you know, you give them money and they give you what, whatever it is that you need. And um, it went from Fridays and Saturdays to, to Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, to hitting a buddy up to split a pill on a Monday till I'm doing it every single day. And uh, I got kicked out of my mother's house at the time. Uh, my father had left and, um, you know, my mother just couldn't deal with me. I wasn't, you know, I had such 
behavioral issues. I wasn't listening to her rules. I wasn't coming home. I was gone for days at a time. Um, you know, she just got fed up because my little sister, you know, she, she felt like I was giving a bad example, which I was. I was at the time. I wasn't the best older brother to her. And uh, she told me I had to leave. And, um, you know, I ended up going into my senior year thinking I had all this, pro you know, promise for sports, but I was strung out getting high. And eventually, right before basketball season got going, I got expelled from my third high school kicked out and had to go and uh, finish the year out in New Hampshire in another high school. I moved into my father, my father's apartment. And, um, you know, my drug, go, even going up there didn't stop me from using. I was driving down to Massachusetts every couple of days to get pills that would last me a few days. Like everything turned into how do I re revolve my life around this pill and getting high. And, um, you know, it didn't matter. Like sports went out the window family went out the window. I really only cared about, you know, how do I use? And, um, you know, I ended up graduating high school by some miracle. I don't even know, four high schools in two states. And, you know, I'm a bright kid for the most part. I just never, you know, really applied myself at that period of time. And, um, you know, I got, the day I graduated, I moved right back down to Massachusetts. I was living in the Cladden Hill Projects I uh, ended up moving to the Mystic Projects in Somerville, and I uh, was living this this lifestyle around people that were like me. Um, you know, my mother and my father always told me as a kid, you are who you hang around with. And you hang around successful people, well, you become successful. Well, I was not hanging around successful people. I was hanging around drug dealers, drug users, you know, criminals, and whatever we were doing, I was doing. So when we were selling drugs, I was selling drugs. When we were committing crimes, you know, I was committing crimes and, um, you know, there was something about that life that, that fueled. So I'm getting high. And then when you're, you know, you're selling or you're stealing or you're robbing, you get this like rush that comes along with it. And, um, you know, I just, I wasn't living healthy. I wasn't living right. Um, I was spiritually bankrupt. Um, you know, I didn't, I didn't have meaningful relationships in my life either. Um, you know, didn't really talk to my family. Um, I ended up getting evicted from my apartment um, when I was 19. I moved in with a buddy, uh, in, into a buddy's house, sleeping on the couch, and um, he committed suicide. And uh, we, unfortunately, I had to take him down with his mother. And um, at, it was September 1st, 2004. And when you go through something like that, it only not, you know, obviously this was my own, own things that I was doing, but it, it ended up speeding up my addiction. Um, dealing with that type of trauma, I had nightmares and night terrors. I would wake up thinking he was still alive. And for me, I, I resorted to doing more drugs. That was my remedy, uh, self-medicating to, to try to take the pain away. The crimes got worse. I had less fear of going to jail, of going, you know, of not making it through the night. And, um, you know, my spiral just went out of control. Now I'm in and out of detoxes, in and out of programs. I did have like, there was a part of me that wanted to get better. I had court stuff hanging over my head and I would end up getting through detox, through a couple of steps into a program. And I would be 19 years old, looking at a 35 year old grown man, all muscled out and be like, I'm out of here. Cause once you remove the drugs from me, 
the illusion I had of being this tough guy, drug dealer, stick up kid, it disappeared. I was just a terrified little boy inside once you remove the drugs. And in fight or flight situations without drugs in me, I would run. I would run away from my problems, run away from the solution of getting better. And, um, you know, ultimately, um, I had some, you know, the next step, somebody tried to kill me. I got stabbed in my shoulder and the guy tried swinging a knife in my throat and barely missed. Um, you know, when you're involved in this type of lifestyle, it's, these are the type of things that happen. And, um, you know, eventually I progressed to heroin and, um, back in that time, pharmacies had signs out that said, we do not provide Oxycontin. Um, there's nothing in this building that, that, because pharmacies were getting robbed, a lot of, you know, bad things were going on. Uh, you couldn't find any on the streets. And, uh, this kid gave me a line of, of heroin and said, Hey buddy, I know, cause I was dope sick. He goes, I know you, you know, I know you need, uh, to get off empty, try this. And at that point it could have been anything and I was going to do it. And uh, I sniffed that, you know, that line of heroin and it was $40. You know, I, I went from doing a 40 of an oxy 80, a half of an 80 and to five to, to six pills a day, uh, the $40, you know, the half of an 80 was nothing. Now all of a sudden I'm spending three, four, $500 a day just to, you know, survive in my mind where now I was introduced to this bag of heroin that was $40 a day. So I made the, you know, the economic decision to progress and my disease, and I started sniffing heroin. And um, I would always look at dope addicts that shot dope and be like, oh, I'm never going to be you. I'm never going to be that guy. Even when I was in detox trying to kick 80s, I looked at the, uh, even people that sniffed dope, like I will never progress to you. And one, slowly but surely, I ended up becoming that IV heroin addict, the, the IV crack cocaine user. Um, I got arrested for being a monkey that sold bananas. Um, I was selling heroin to provide my habit. And, uh, you know, pretty much the wheels fell off. Um, at the end of my run, I was sleeping head to toe on a futon in South Boston. My family wouldn't pick up the phone for me. I'd been in and out of jail. I'd been in and out of programs. Um, I had some serious time hanging over my head and, um, you know, I was like at the end of my rope and, uh, my buddy ended up getting into a program and every day he begged me to come in like, dude, you need to come in. It's this great program. Um, because he knew I was on this like suicide mission. Every day I got high with the intention of not waking up the next day. I couldn't actually pull it, you know, I couldn't go through with suicide. So that was my way of like, you know, escaping, you know, what I was dealing with. And, uh, you know, fortunately I hit rock bottom. I had that moment of clarity when I wanted to live more than I wanted to die. Um, and I felt like if I didn't take the action now, like I, I was gonna, I was gonna be dead. And, um, you know, I'm great. I'm, I'm extremely grateful that that happened to me, that I, I was given the gift of desperation, that I was so hopeless, so spiritually broke, literally couldn't pick up the phone because I had robbed every single one of my friends, my family. I burned every bridge around me till I was isolated and left on an island. And uh, due to those consequences, on top of court hanging over my head, I ended up, you know, taking the steps to get better. And, uh, you know, it's been a, a crazy up and down journey since then. Um, you know, I went through a halfway house. I rediscovered a love of mine, poetry. I wrote when I was a kid. But again, going to a situation, now I'm 21 years old. 
I'm still scared and terrified of life when you remove the drug from me. So being around, so I start writing because I can't talk to these people. I can't talk to the guy I just did 10 years in prison because I was scared I was going to be judged. And when you're getting high and when you're on the streets, any weakness is used against you. So what I would do is I would put my thoughts, feelings, and experiences down on a piece of paper. And, uh, you know, that over the years ended up developing into this large platform that I have now. It, it gave me a purpose, opened doors to advocacy work that I started getting involved with. Um, you know, it was this like freeing feeling uh, when you write a piece and you get like, you know, I used to let all the, the weight sit on my chest and, um, then I would explode when I bottled too much stuff up. So what I got into the habit of was whatever I was going through, I would put it down. Talk about my day, talk about what I was going through, talk about the shame, talk about, you know, the fears of trying to rebuild relationships with people. And, uh, you know, I was blessed that I surrounded myself with a good network, good people. And I started slowly but surely rebuilding my life. And then over that time, I mean, I became a father early on in recovery. I got a 12-year-old son, Christian Ganem. He's a handsome little stud. Um, I have a seven-year-old daughter that uh, is a troublemaker, um, but she's like my little Sour Patch kid. She's sweet and sour. Um, I put a book out in 2012 called The Shadow of an Addict. I've traveled around the country performing. I featured at the New Eurekan Cafe in New York City, which is like a world-famous poetry spot. Um, I was given the advocacy, ab the 2015 Massachusetts Advocate of the Year Award. Um, I've literally built an entire life that started with these little words that I write that help me get through whatever it is that I'm going through. And it created these doors of opportunities once I started putting it out in the world. And, um, you know, I'm like a, a half decent recovery figure in the Massachusetts, um, you know, for, for advocates. Um, doing recovery events. Uh, I'm like a DEA circuit speaker, which is crazy because, you know, I got arrested for, for things way back when. And now they have me speaking at youth conferences, which is pretty cool. You know, I've been able to travel the country due to it. I've opened multiple businesses. Um, like I've been given such a beautiful life and it's, it's, it starts with recovery. If I didn't get clean, I wouldn't have kids. I wouldn't have rediscovered my love for writing. I wouldn't have taken the initiative with that writing to try to chase a dream that was, you know, if you go back 10 years and you tell the kids I grew up with, um, you know, I'm about to do poetry. Uh, I remember them laughing at me for it. And, uh, you know, fortunately, I don't think there's too many people laughing at me now uh, with the way life is, uh, you know, has played out. And, um, you know, I try to live by like you do right by people. People will do right by you. You put out enough good in the world that will definitely come back to you. And, um, you know, I've been able to build uh, with an incredible team, a couple of different facilities and, uh, you know, this one in Wakefield that we opened up in October, uh, Aftermath Addiction Treatment Center is a, uh, you know, it's just, it's a dream come true. I'm working with an incredible team. And, and the thing about it is every single person that's there genuinely cares about the well-being of somebody and, and wants to see them get clean. Uh, you know, my staff, Joe Pup is the clinical director, Cody program director, Jenna Bedreau, the uh, chief operating officer, Hillary Hansen. I mean, we have this team that like, all we want to do is try to inspire the next person to get clean. Because we've been, we were not supposed to make it in life. We were not supposed to, you know, make it out of the darkness of addiction. 
and we've all been blessed to be in long-term recovery and we're here trying to guide and advise people in a way where they can see that they need help, take the accountability, put the effort in themselves and rebuild their life. And to have a team that's all on the same page, driven to do that is just, you know, it's an incredible feeling working with people that, that give so much of themselves day in and day out, trying to help people get better. It's just, it's so incredible to be a part of that team. Um, you know, we're just, I'm blessed and, and grateful for, for what we have. So that was amazing story. I'm sure you hear it so many times. It's just incredible how you rose above the shadows and came out just like you said, blessed and your head's in the clouds and you just want to keep going higher. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, just thinking about your story where it all started, you said at 12, correct? If yeah. I remember, do you ever think like when you're in school, you know, you're making it to school. Do you ever think about mm -hmm. the resources you wish you had at that time that you offer the, now? I mean, not us as a, as a, as a, as a program, but there's definitely resources that I wish were available or that I knew about when I was a kid. So I struggle with drugs at a young age. I, you know, there's a bunch of, of great recovery high schools in the state of Massachusetts. And I wonder, you know, if, I got introduced to that at a younger age, what, you know, the trajectory of my life would have been if, if we could have gotten, you know, a handle on that problem at a younger age with people who were like more specifically, because when I was getting in trouble, it was like, all right, this kid's a behavioral problem. He's just a, a, a he's this, he's that. Where like some amazing people, you know, I've, I've spoken at a couple of the recovery high schools and you know, just seeing the staff there and, and their approach with the students. It's like, you know, I, I know personally I could have benefited from that, you know, going through high schools. Maybe I wouldn't have gone through four high schools, you know, if we caught it as a drug problem and not just, you know, looking at it as I was a bad kid, a behavioral issue. Um, you know, I think that's probably the biggest thing looking back. Um, also, I wish there was better communication with my parents over things. It was kind of like, um, you know, the dare program was, was, was around when I was a kid, which was kind of a joke. Um, my parents didn't really talk to me about, you know, I have addiction that runs through my family. It was never spoken about. It was more like I'll be, you know, you'll, you'll catch a beating if you do drugs, which I don't think is the, uh, you know, the best method to, to approach. Um, you know, it didn't necessarily work for me or a lot of kids that I know. My 12 year old son, I've opened dialogue with him about like my story. Um, he's, he's heard me speak a bunch of times. He knows where I fell short. Um, you know, we talk about drinking and drugs and peer pressure and just try to give him knowledge for the situations he might get, get faced with and try to give him an escape plan. Uh, you know, one of the things that I tell him is if his friends ever bring up drugs, say my dad's a psychopath, there's a drug test waiting at home. I can't do this, you know? Um, cause that, that gives him an out and it's something that we've discussed over and over again, where he's prepared that if it does happen, you know, hopefully he uses something like that as like, Hey guys, I can't, I can't be involved with this. I can't do what you guys are doing, you know? And he doesn't, I mean, through conversations up till now, it's something he doesn't want to do, you know? And it started out at a younger age with like, you are who you hang around with. You hang around kids that are getting in trouble. There was some time you know, when he was younger that he was getting in trouble at school and he would always try to justify it. And it's like, well, you and your group of friends are always getting in trouble. 
you have to change who you surround yourself with. And then kind of leading up until that, where now it's like more, you know, cigarettes and alcohol, you know, that those could be things that could be introduced. I mean, he's in sixth grade, he's in middle school. It's, you know, that's just, you know, the reality. And I, I, you know, want to have open communication that if he does ever try something that, that he feels comfortable enough to come home and know that like, I'm not going to get mad. I'm, I'm going to try to talk to him and, and support him and, you know, hopefully it's a choice that he, 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 he makes the right decision and doesn't drink. And, but I'm going to try to give him the knowledge and education and, you know, do what I can with him. So yeah. I think that's a lot of the parents concern. It's like, how do you play? Do you play bad cop, good cop? Mm-hmm. Obviously you need an equal balance. But yeah, absolutely. No one ever would think, like you said, you started off mm-hmm. with just a cigarette. It's yeah. just like, and it mm-hmm. all of a sudden led, what was it about in addition to just your friends, what was the emotion you felt that led you on to additional drugs? What was it that really I kept mean, it was, you there? There was more like the emptiness. There was that feeling of fulfillment when you would do it. It was the laughs with your friends. It was being a part of, um, you know, I always wanted to be around people. Um, I had insecurities that it played into that, like, I wasn't going to be liked or I wasn't going to be looked on in a certain way. Um, and then when you're under the influence of it, a lot of times it like takes away whatever it is that you're going through. It's the illusion of, of peace. But then you, you know, for me, when I would come off whatever I was on, I still had the things that I was struggling with. I still had issues at home. I still had issues at school. I still, you know, there, it, it was like a temporary fix, a temporary escape. It was not something that was sustainable. And that's something that like recovery has given me. It's not temporary. It's not something that's that's you know, just going to fix certain parts for a short period of time. It's something that I'm consistently working at self-development, that I'm working at becoming a better person. And, you know, there's a drive for that where when you're getting high, it's like a very short time frame that you're, you know, you, you, you feel like you're free. You feel like there's no problems. But the second whatever you're on wears off, it's like, yep, it's all, it hits you that much harder. Yeah, I think not just drug addictions, it could be the same for any type of addiction, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, food, sugar, yep. um, shopping, just anything. Mm-hmm. It's just, it eases your m- mind, it allows mm-hmm. you to relax and forget about what's going on. What coping mechanisms do you use now that you know the difference on how to um, approach certain situations? Yeah. Well, I mean, writing's big for me. Writing, you know, I write, whether I finish something or not, I just consistently try to write thoughts, feelings down, ideas, when I get struck with inspiration. Um, I have a great recovery network. I pick up the phone, talk to them. We talk nonsense and crack jokes and uh, sports is an outlet. Uh, Not that I've been able to play as much because I'm old now and I got a bad back, but watching sports, you know, basketball, football, those are huge. Uh, My kids. You know, I get to, to relive my childhood through them. Um, you know, my son's into like the Marvel movies and Star Wars. So we watch every movie that comes out, every show. Uh, Cobra Kai, we blasting through now. Uh, my daughter, uh, I mean, she's trying to do her own ponytail right now, which is crazy. Seven and a half years old, you know, I can't, I try. I, I can do one ponytail. I can't do any other hairstyles. I struggle in that department. But just like spending time and seeing them laugh and grow and develop. I mean, you know, those are like the joys in life. And, you know, and then in the work aspect, 
I mean, there's nothing more rewarding than seeing somebody turn their life around or they go from feeling hopeless to having that life come back. Like they have hope, they have like, I can do this or I can, I can reach the next milestone. I can get my life back. I can progress in life in a, a way that normal people, you know, I don't have to be waking up trying to get a fix. I don't have to wake up and drink my first drink the second I open my eyes. I don't have to go, you know, smoke crack or sniff coke. Like I don't have to do those things today. And there's something about being in the trenches with people, you know, side by side trying to pull them out that like, you know, it's just a priceless feeling. Um, just a beautiful thing to be involved with. It is. And you guys are doing work that is mm -hmm. not extensively paid a lot. And just like mm -hmm. social workers and mm -hmm. educators, we're, they're supporting people 24 seven. Yeah. And it's just incredible how not all the funding is going towards mm -hmm. certain pieces of the mental health, the social health mm -hmm. um, and recovery centers, you know, it's just, is there, have you been working towards finding um, funds and so forth? Has it been harder I mean, well, now? No, I mean, so there, there's, for public programs, it's difficult for funding. We are a private treatment center, so it's a little different. Um, you know, we're fortunate that that there is money that comes in, um, you know, higher quality care, you, you know, you, people kind of pay for that higher quality of care, which is good. Um, but unfortunately, we don't have much of a voice. It's one of the things, one of the reasons why I take advocacy so serious um, because people don't speak out for addiction. They don't speak out for better programs. I mean, it's a lot more difficult to try to get funding um, in the public programs. And especially now where there's a lot of private treatment that's getting introduced into Massachusetts and a lot of the good players and in, in the good staff from public programs are getting taken to go to private. You know, you would like to see the states step up a little bit um, for their public programs to try to upgrade them and offer better quality of care and also offer the people that work for them a better chance at making it a career, you know, sustainable money for people that are working because a lot of them are overworked and underpaid and understaffed. So I guess the question is, is how do you distinguish where someone can go? How do you find placements for them? Um, for us, I mean, it's really insurance based. Um, I personally don't like discussing um, cash pay. It's a lot of money and it's not a guarantee. Um, at Aftermath, we don't try to fluff numbers and give you false hope that, you know, I see treatment centers do all the time. 80% of people that come through here achieve recovery. Like my only belief is that the longer you stay in treatment, the better chance of success that you have. And that's whether you're at the Ritz-Carlton of rehabs or the, you know, the bottom of the barrel places like the longer you stay connected the better chance at, at success you're going to have and um a lot of times it's just based off of insurance and need like do you need a detox um you kind of look at the insurance and these are your options like you know you have private insurance you have better options you have mass health you have these options and then if you don't have insurance there's free care beds at state facilities and there's some scholarships at some of the private facilities that you can try and find so so really there's good. always an opportunity yeah, just to yeah. find help no matter what. Mm -hmm. That's really, Absolutely. have you noticed there's an increase in programs and a support and advocacy in this area now that it's more relevant and out in the open? And yeah, various? yeah. I mean, there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of advocacy right now. 
Uh, there's a lot of support. There's more programs opening up. I mean, this is a very relevant issue that affects a lot of people. Um, I mean, I go to like middle schools and high schools. And when you ask a crowd of kids who has been affected by substance abuse, who knows somebody who's struggling and you see middle schoolers raising their hand in large numbers. I mean, this is a, a, a an everyday struggle for, you know, you, you can't find somebody around here that has never met someone who's struggled with substance abuse, you know? So I think due to that, due to the change in, in the nature of it, where people are looking at it, like it's not a scumbag, low life junkie alcoholic. And it's more of like, wow, that's somebody's son that's struggling. That's somebody's daughter that's struggling. That's somebody's brother or sister or mother or father. I think the perception on it has changed a lot. I think there's more, advocacy out there due to personal experience you know a lot of mothers have taken action due to like their kids being affected and then seeing how difficult it is trying to get their kid help because it's not easy it's not an easy road to try to get the help so a lot of mothers have have taken you know taken that step to try to support other families going through it a lot of parents have have lost their kid and have turned it into you know into like a foundation so their memory lives on i mean i've done um, you know, a lot of things with no first time with Stephanie and John Green, um, you know, there's foundations throughout the entire state, you know, that are based off of, you know, keeping their son or daughter's memory alive, which is huge. Like, it's incredible to take probably the worst thing that's ever happened to you and try to turn it into something to save somebody else's kid. It's like one of the most um, admirable acts that, that I've seen with people in this space. And I think that's the thing people don't recognize that drugs don't discriminate. No, like no. you said, it's not, we see it in movies and it's the low life living on the street, mm -hmm. but the, what we don't know, it's here in the suburbs, it's here mm -hmm. in the streets in Boston, and it could be off in the richest neighborhoods. Yep. I, it's funny when I was uh. younger. You'd be like, oh, they go to private school, so they must have all this money. There's mm -hmm. no drugs over there, but yeah, little yeah, did you sure. know, the richest people private, have the best yeah. drugs. <laughs> You know, they they're getting have, it from the parents, maybe yeah. the parents drugs. And they, they don't have to struggle as much. So like crimes aren't being committed. You know what I mean? They can go to their parents to get, oh my, I need 200 bucks for this. You're, you're probably not thinking, well, the kid's going to take the $200 and buy drugs. My, I need to go shopping or I need to go to the movies or I need to do this or I need to do that. Where like, you know, the inner city kids that might not have the money will go out and, you know, break into cars or steal or, or you know, they'll do you know, something different that warrants, you know, I remember when I was getting high, we were always looked at as like that second class citizen, but I was always, you know, when I was selling drugs, I would go to nicer areas and people would, you know, be buying, you know, consistently. So it's like, you know, ultimately addiction doesn't matter if you're rich or poor, black or white, gay or straight, it affects everybody equally. And whether it's it's drugs or alcohol, like you see it running rampant. And especially right now, um, you know, when you're talking about the isolation, the lack of connection with friends, forced isolation, all this stuff that's going on. I mean, self-medicating is, is at an all-time high right now. People taking that extra drink, they're going to their, you know, their psychiatrist to get, an, you know, up their dose on, on their medication. I mean, there's, there's different pathways that lead people down this road and you know when i'm talking about having a heroin addiction nobody ever questions like hey well why did you need help they're like oh you you, you shot heroin that's that's a problem you need to you know you need to go and get help alcohol is the one thing you have to explain to people why you don't drink 
I don't drink. Well, why? Why don't you? It's, it's only alcohol. It's not that bad, right? And then also prescription medication, we justify it because a doctor who went to school, who knows so much better than me, told me I need to take this to help with that. So like, you know, there's just, there's, there's different avenues and there's, there's, there's different things that happen. And, you know, I think it's, it's, you just see more and more people that are, that are struggling right now. And it's, you know, things that like alcohol is illegal you know, social thing, prescription medication, a doctor prescribes it. How could it be bad? My doctor knows best. It's just, you know, it's a yeah, lot of it, variables. It, it, you're so right. Cause I, I myself don't drink. I drank a long time ago. I stopped. I had a lot of health issues and I kicked it out and I never went back once those mm -hmm. were resolved. But it's funny as a woman who doesn't drink, they're like, Oh, you must be pregnant. Or, you yeah, know, it's, yeah, yeah. It, there's always those, not mm -hmm. negative connotations, but it's like you go on a date, let's grab yeah. a drink. And then yeah. they think you're weird because you're like, well, well, let's grab a coffee instead. Yeah, yeah. And then they're probably like, well, is she recovering alcoholic? Is there something yep. wrong with her? Um, but yeah, like you said, it's so part of the societal norm. Mm -hmm. We don't look at it. And it's, yeah. you know, like, and again, doctors prescribe drugs. So is there any advocacy over that piece of, um, what you're looking at in sense of doctors prescribing oxycodone like when i got my wisdom teeth out they want to give me pain mm. meds and my mom never mm. gave it to me just because i was in college yeah, and yeah. so it's just is there anything on that there, you guys are i mean with? not necessarily right now advocacy is difficult i mean a lot of advocacy advocacy is in person it's talking with politicians and policymakers. i mean that's like the true advocacy it's giving back to the community um i think doctors are getting more educated um, just because of the impact of, of opiates. I think when a pharmaceutical company that like the makers of Oxycontin, Purdue Pharma are so under fire, they file for bankruptcy, um, you know, they got sued where they have to pay back, which is really like a drop in the bucket to them, but they had to pay back a large lump sum of money, not large lump sum to me, not necessarily to them. But I think there's more education and more knowledge out there and also we are having doctors that were raised that grew up in the midst of this. And maybe they weren't the ones using, but they were personally affected by it due to their friends, due to their school, due to what they saw. So I think there's going to be in the next five to 10 years, better knowledge around it with the people that are coming up just due to like that personal experience of growing up in like the Oxycontin epidemic, the, the Perk 30 um, you know, where over prescribing, I mean, Adderall, uh, when you want to get down to like different medications, Adderall and little kids, it's like, they're getting, you know, we're in a society where it's like, all right, here's your symptom. Here's the drug for it. Here's your symptom. Here's the drug for it. Where if you go 25, 30, 35 years ago, your doctor actually knew you, they would try to work through some issues a little bit differently. But, uh, unfortunately over time, um, you know, we got into the, uh, this, this prescription, you know, pain shots and reimbursing at a higher rate for hospitals that took care of pain better. Pharmaceutical companies became the number one lobbyist in DC. Um, there's just so much that, that, that goes into it, um, you know, that really turned the corner. So now you're diagnosing kids, you know, I, I know personally, somebody who was six years old getting Adderall. And now every day you're taking something for as the solution. You're taking something as the solution. So you're like already conditioned that you need to take medications. Um, 
And then also it's one medication treats this, but the, the side effect affects that. So you got to take a medication for the side effect that creates another, it's, you know, it's just such a, it's a slippery slope. And I, I don't say that to, to push anybody that's taking meds, you know, that needs it. I'm just, you know, th that's my opinion looking at certain things that I've seen is that, you know, we live in like a really over medicated society right now. Yeah. It, it's crazy. Um, you say that, um, I was listening to a radio station. All of a sudden, uh, a commercial comes on when it's a sleep aid for your kid. I was like, that that's incredible. I, I mean, I myself would never give it to my child, a sleep aid, mm -hmm. but it's to think about being prescribed a sleep aid to a three or four-year-old who doesn't sleep. They don't sleep anyway, so why... Yeah. Why no. give them a sleep aid? I mean, you know, you joke back in the day, your parents would put on a little whiskey yep. on your tooth and that would put yeah, them yeah. to bed. But it's, it's the way we evolved, like you said, there's- We're like one of the only- is. We're one of the only countries, the pharmaceuticals, the pharmaceutical industry can directly market to, to consumers in their house. You go to other countries, you don't see the, hey, take this. If you have restless legs, ask your doctor if this medication- serves you side effects and there's a million suicidal thoughts sleep apnea uh you know high blood pressure there's like a million fast forward side effects that they blast through but like there's direct you know they turn your doctor into a drug dealer they turn your your doctor where you'll go to them and say hey you know what i have this ache right here and i saw this medication you know what do you think about me taking it you know it's and just, that's the thing. I think, have you noticed crazy. that some of your cases have started off with an athlete who's broken a hand oh, all the time. or muscle pain all and all of a sudden they're a drug addict mm -hmm. now? Have yeah. you noticed a lot of cases like that? Yeah. One of the, the biggest cases, my little league coach uh, for baseball, he's a, he's a cop in a city and I was speaking at their high school and, uh, you know, I finished speaking. He comes up to the side, pulls me aside and he goes, you know, my wife broke her wrist, you know, broke her wrist, got on these, uh, you know, Perk 30s, pain medication, got scripts and scripts and scripts, more pain. The doctor would prescribe more pills. One day the doctor pulls her off. She's going to reach out. She started reaching out to friends and people, started buying them off the street. Then went from buying them off the street to progressing to heroin. Middle-class America, cop who's supposed to be like protecting you know, the streets from drug dealers and people using and his wife is addicted. And it's like, you know, it started with pain medication from an injury. And if, you know, if, if I went and looked back to when I was 12 years old and she was, you know, bringing snacks to the games and, and waters, like you would never picture, you know, her being a heroin addict, leaving the house, leaving kids behind. And it just shows like the power that these drugs have. And also the power that when you're getting prescription pain medicine that you have to really take into consideration, do I need to take it for the full script? You know, obviously there's going to be situations where there is pain. You need to take it, but do you need to take it for seven days? Can you take it for a couple of days and then dump it out after it's like, you know. And like your story there, I think when you said she comes in, to the games and you had no idea. I think that's mm -hmm. a lot of cases for a lot of households. Mm -hmm. These people are yeah. able to like, keep themselves together, mm -hmm. go out and do what they need to do, go to work, take care of yep. their kids. And then the second they come home, it's just a disaster. Yep. And they held it together for the whole day, whatever they take and just enough to get through the day. And yep. all of a sudden yep. 
the weekends it's a disaster and it's yeah. just you know it's the family that suffers as well mm-hmm. i can't imagine having to deal with something like that or seeing your mom in mm-hmm. so many different states and then that would yeah. impact you in the future now mm-hmm. are you close with your mother and sister now yeah, yeah i'm close and my father my father's like okay. my best friend um i'm close with my mother she's uh unfortunately in isolation in new hampshire because she doesn't she's scared of the governor restrictions and you know again going back to this whole isolation it's like you know it's just tough tough christmas this year didn't get to see her because she's you know she's uh, she has the mind state of, of being scared. My sister, um, you know, I have a great relationship with her. She's the best. She's in a similar situation where she wants to, you know, make sure she's protected. And, um, but, you know, it, it took some time with my father to rebuild our relationship. And we, we have very stubborn personalities that clash at times. But like over the years, like our relationship has grown and grown. And that's like, you know, he's my best friend. He's, he's my idol. He's somebody I look up to. And like, I'm beyond blessed that I got clean, that like we worked through difficulties. Cause even in recovery, like life isn't, I didn't get clean and have everything come back to me. I didn't have everybody like, Oh, you know, you have five minutes clean two weeks. Like, Hey, you know, it took time and effort and it took like a lot of disappointment. A lot of times I would, you know, in the beginning, I would try to go to family things and it would be, I would be shamed for my actions and I would have to like kind of take it on the chin and um, you know, but I worked through that and it's, it's the consequences of my actions and it's accountability for what I've done and, and trying to make it right by moving forward. Um, You know, and, and I'm blessed that, that we got to a point that like I talked to him, you know, just about every day. Um, I'm happy for, for where he is. He's happy for my successes. When I have good things happen, I call him first before anybody I get on the phone. Like even with the new business, it's like, oh, we got our permit for this. Oh, we got our license. Oh, we got joint commission accredited. Oh, we got our, you know, we got our first client. It's like, you know, I want to share those moments with him. And, um, you know, yeah, I think that's just the most important the thing. People in recovery need that support. And it's tough mm-hmm. to know coming from the family side, knowing everything they ever did and what they did to you. How do you give them the support after you hold so much, not mm-hmm. hatred, but I don't know. It's just it's pain. It's, it's you know, pain. You feel sad for pain. what they did. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's, you know, how do you how do you help recover people who are in recovery, create those relationships again? How does your my, my biggest advice to people is never apologize. I never apologize for what I did because I, when I was using, I, I apologize so much with conditions. I'm sorry, but I need $100. I'm sorry. Please forgive me, uh, but I need this. There was always some attachment to it. And when I got clean, I, I, I stopped saying I'm sorry. And I started using my action and my footwork as the biggest apology. Um, yeah. I think you know, when you say putting, sorry so many times, it's like, yeah, it became boy who cries phrase. wolf. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So I stopped saying that. Um, and I just, you know, I, I'm going to prove it with my actions and, and you can question or doubt me along the way. And I'm just going to keep pushing forward, keep doing the right thing, you know, and that's kind of what I did. And, and that's what I, the, the advice that I give, give others is put the footwork in. You know, don't put the footwork in with no expectations of, of getting anything back. And that the more you work harder at your recovery, the better your life becomes. The ripple effect of that will be everything else in your life will get better. 
Will you always repair relationships? Sometimes you won't. And, and, you know, for me, like there's, there's certain family members, it's, you know, sorry, I'm, I don't, I don't need to try to force anything anymore. You know, I, I have a beautiful recovery family. I have friends that are like family. I got my mother, my father, my sister in my life. Um, you know, there's, I don't necessarily need toxic people. Well, I don't need to, to be put down or belittled. And, and that's something I'm not volunteering for anymore. You know, I tried, tried working through it, didn't happen, so be it. I wish you nothing but the best and I'm gonna go in this direction in my life. Um, but obviously like, you know, I'm fortunate that, that that did not happen with my mother, my father, my sister. But even then there's, there's family members that are too toxic that sometimes you have to, you know, you have to separate from. It's hard because that's, you always feel guilty and you're always gonna look back at what you did. But like you said, you just gotta move forward and keep going. And it's just with anything you do, you mm -hmm. always think back, oh, I was so stupid back then. But like you said, your actions truly speak yeah. for what you did. Mm -hmm. And it's in a way you feel like maybe it's an apology of yeah. how you did things back then. Mm -hmm. um, is there a story that you felt from the companies you've run? Is there one story that really stood out to you? Yeah, buddy of mine just celebrated four years. And uh, it came through, not the program I'm at now, another one that I was running um, before. And he was fresh out of detox, working class. Wife had no idea he was a drug addict, you know, worked full time, pay all his bills. And he just had demons. And um, he ended up getting high behind the wheel, catching an OUI case. Um, I ended up getting him into a detox, then coming to my program after. And his wife was going to divorce him. You're never going to see the kids again. I'm going to sell the house. And he cried in my arms thinking like his life was over, like everything's crumbling. And um, all I said was, man, if you stay clean, you don't know what can happen. Like, I can't promise that everything will fall into place, but like, you know, take care of yourself, take, take your recovery serious, put your best foot forward, develop a recovery network, do all these different steps and like watch what happens. Right. So he graduated my program. His wife started talking to him again. Right. Did family therapy, moved to a sober house, started coming home on the weekends. Right. Slowly but surely built up. Then his wife let him move back in, but he had to sleep on the couch. And I remember he called me. Um, he called me once his wife let him back in the big bed. And he was so happy that like the house wasn't sold. He was, you know, his kids were still there. His wife stood by his side. And uh, he just celebrated four years, um, a couple months, about uh, two months ago, I think, October. Wow. That's a beautiful story. I have one, one more that I'm going to say. Uh, a good friend of mine that went through the program, young kid, could be a professional golfer. Uh, he gets clean and uh, he's in school to be a doctor right now. Like, like you said, you just don't know until you, don't, no you try idea. it. Yeah, it mm -hmm. takes a while, but once you stick with it, you see great things happening mm -hmm. and one after another positive stuff positive no it's step. crazy because he like you know he, he did a bunch of jobs he worked for me at a pizza shop i ran he managed a sober house that i own literally went to work at a treatment center before he still comes in to speak at the new at the new facility uh, at aftermath and he's like you know being a part of his journey step by step has been absolutely incredible and um now he's in school to be a doctor. I have another good friend that's from Stoneham that uh, manages my soul house, went through the program, has coming up soon to be three years, two and a half, I think he's at, 
Um, I remember a year ago, we had a conversation. He was working for me as a behavioral health tech and he wanted more. And we had a discussion, went back to school, went to school to get his LADAC and his KDAC, licensed drug and alcohol counseling license. And, um, you know, goes to school, online courses, working full-time, managing a sober house, um, ends up taking a new job at a new place. And he was just promoted to the program director um, last week. So like, it's just crazy seeing these people in their early days out of detox where it's like the world's ending, they have no future, they're hopeless. And you see them turn their life around and then like do some incredible things after like, you know, like my buddy getting back into the big bed with his wife, uh, the house and his kids and still working. Like my buddy going to school to be a doctor and my buddy just got promoted to uh, be a program director and still be in contact where like, you know, you get to be a part of their journey step for step. It's, it, it's something that's pretty cool. It, going back to like, you know, it's, it's just priceless when you get to work with people like that. And, I'm and sure. Just you know, thinking about it and mm-hmm. you being personally connected to them probably means so much more. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure every client that comes in has oh, there yeah, been. There's, there's a million stories I can go over of like crazy turnarounds. Right. Is there a client, unfortunately, that just didn't have that turnaround? Yeah. I mean, when you, when you work in this field, a lot of people don't make it, you know, that's just, it's just part of um, a disease that, you know, you shoot heroin, you can die. I mean, it's not even heroin right now. It's fentanyl. And a lot of people don't make it drinking, liver failure, uh, drunk driving accidents. I mean, suicide, there's just, a, there's a lot of death that comes with this. So for, you know, one of the things that I try to do is focus on the positives. Uh, the stories like that mean, you know, not, not saying that I don't, miss the people that pass away, but like I try to keep the focus on positive because there is a lot of relapse, a lot of death, a lot of like people that that, that are still out there struggling, um, you know, that you, you can get caught up focusing on that and it really, you know, it hurts your soul, so. Yeah, and it helps you learn just in general, mm-hmm. seeing those characteristics and watching them in their life. Hopefully it's lessons to bring on to new clients who mm-hmm. also have similar situations. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like you said, I can't imagine it's not easy. My mother was a chaplain, and, you know, just mm-hmm. every day she would tell me about these stories like addiction, death doesn't discriminate. Oh. It's always there, no matter yeah. rich, poor, black, white, whatever you are. And it's just dealing with that every day and seeing it. It's, mm-hmm. it's a job that you're made for you can't just say I want to be it's you're made for your heart's made for it and just connecting with all those people you become family with them for the rest of your lives want to give us a few contact information about your new facility yeah of course um for anybody that wants to check out my work um if you like poetry go to facebook.com backslash Matt Gannam poet or look up Matt Gannam the poet on facebook um, Aftermath Addiction Treatment Center on Facebook for, for the treatment center that I run. Um, our website is aftermathtreatmentcenter.com. Our phone number is 781-587-3636. Again, the number is 781-587-3636. You can email us at mganem, G-A-N-E-M, at aftermathtc.com. Um, yeah. And we, we consistently put out blogs of information for people to check up if they want any information on it. Um, whether we work with somebody's insurance or not, we try to find placement for everybody that calls us and support. Um, 
I wish I had more poetry events, but uh, unfortunately, due to the uh, the lockdown of social gatherings at places, there aren't too many open mics and poetry events being uh, put on. So, but I'm constantly putting up material on 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 that page as well. So, that's awesome. Do you mind mm -hmm. just doing a poem for us? Yeah, of course. To end the session. Mm -hmm. On the surface of a sleepless ocean, the cold depths of frozen emotion. On pieces of a heart broken, flown inside a love that was stolen. I'm written poetry spoken. I'm a fresh page with a mind full of things to say, reminiscing on yesterday's best days to get the stress away, even if I'm depressed today. I'm that feeling inside. When you look your lover in the eyes, they know what the person alive could provide. I'm the sun setting on a crimson sky. I'm trapped inside these speakers, turning naysayers into believers. When the poem gets deeper, I'm the teacher, abusing the fact that I have the platform to reach you. I'm lost in the wind, a breeze that will never come across you again. Brought up in Boston, boxed in the problems, coming up from the bottom where rise is the only option. I'm the beautiful ugly, a recovering junkie, making barely enough money to keep a roof over me and my son that loves me, and I refuse to let him go hungry because my past has come back to crush me. I'm that first breath of freedom. Breathe in the thousand reasons, leaving a cell block of demons screaming freedom like you just left work for the weekend. Only the work week lasted for five years. Borrow time will make you see clear as you watch your youth disappear. You learn the truth when you're in there. Only your true friends will be there when you breathe free air. I'm the rebirth of Pac Poe and Shakespeare. I'm the rose that grew from concrete. The thump thump beneath the street of where Romeo and Juliet would meet. I'm the madness created from the telltale heartbeat. I'm Achilles at war, but my pen is my sword. Using the allure of everything I went through before as a metaphor that you don't have to struggle anymore. I'm that morning light. After making it through a night that might have taken your life when there was nothing but darkness in sight. But you found the strength to fight because the sun shines bright. Once you believe everything will be all right. I'm the last words that a poet writes. I'm the skies telling the story of my past that remind me of what I'll see when I'm looking back. Similes didn't have an impact on half of that. So I literally mapped out the path from where I was at. I'm chaos finding serenity, the point beyond infinity, taking what's given to me so I could build from within my city. I even pray for my enemy because once upon a time, they were a friend of me. Regardless if they see it differently, I'm trying to make history. I'm a legend. Or so I've been told by my friends that made it to heaven is a penman. I'm the extension of their resurrection. Redemption. If anyone abused a prescription medicine whose progression led them to heroin, let that settle in. I'm the voice of a generation, raising my voice to the nation. Inspiration for every attic getting high in a basement, a kid trying to get clean as a detox patient, that they can say, I am one of the ones that made it. I'm hope for those that lost it. Still carrying pieces of broken dreams in their pocket. Who think happiness is found in material objects? I'm street knowledge. I'm passion, pleasure, and pain. I'm lightning, thunder, and rain. I'm what my mother made on the first day of May. I'm a heroin addict that changed, but couldn't wash away the stains that covered my veins. I'm Matthew Gannon, and you will remember the name. That was awesome. Thank you so much. I appreciate yeah, no you problem. being on the show. Once again, everyone, this is Matt Gannum. He is the CEO of Aftermath Recovery in Wakefield. Reach out to him. He will answer you personally. He's always there for everybody who's in need. And thank you so much again. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it.